0: Hello and welcome to the Room of Lives. I'm your host Neil. Today we are talking to Rishi Dev Choudhury, who was my former colleague in a computational neuroscience research group some years ago. Rishi is one of the smartest people that I've ever met, period. I remember, in fact, that Rishi would often connect ideas and speak and make jokes so fast that his mind seemed like an overclocked GPU. And I would have a hard time keeping up. Also, when I say Rishi is smart, I don't just mean that he is good at being a smart academic in the field of neuroscience. As this conversation will probably reveal, he has incredible curiosity, talent, experience and wisdom across a wide range of intellectual, artistic and spiritual pursuits. Okay. Let's have a broader introduction that I have adapted from his blog at Three Quarks Daily. Rishi was born in Colombo, Sri Lanka of Indian parents and grew up in Bangalore, India before going to college in Massachusetts where he had a suitably unfocused liberal arts education. Afterwards, he drifted about India and briefly worked as a journalist for a paper in Kolkata interviewing local celebrities and struggling artists. He got his PhD in applied math at Yale and was a postdoctoral fellow studying computational neuroscience at the University of Texas at Austin and New York University and a Google research fellow at UC Berkeley. Rishi is currently an assistant professor of mathematics and neuroscience at the University of California, Davis. In the meanwhile, he tries desperately to keep his literary and scientific interests away from each other and to shield his worldview from the tentacles of modern science. In this first part, we talk about Rishi's strange and varied life trajectory so far, such as working in a farm in South India and as a journalist in Kolkata, and then his educational journey and interests in neuroscience all right are we ready yes yeah okay well thanks a lot for uh doing this podcast how much uh how much longer are you in austin
1: i've been austin for about Four or five weeks more. hmm Okay. So, I'm kind of heading back to India for a few months and then moving to California. Okay. Um, so,
0: um, I took the points that you mentioned in the email and I kind of rearranged them a little bit, introduced a couple more questions of my own. Um, but since um, we don't really... Well, I usually don't have time to go through them with the guests before the podcast. So some of these are going to be, oh, hey, Rishi, you wanted to talk about this. What is it that you wanted to share? Mm Okay, So, um, man, it's already getting kind of hot, I think. Is is it fine? Okay. All right. So let's start with a uh, sort of biography of sorts. So where were you born? Where did you grow up? What was your schooling like? What places did you live in? Uh, What kinds of work have you done until now,
1: Um, et cetera? Okay. Um, So I was born in Sri Lanka, in Colombo. My parents both grew up in Calcutta, but they moved around a lot and they were in Sri Lanka for five years. Um, They really loved it. We left when I was about two because the civil war was starting to get pretty crazy. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, I think they would have stayed if they could have. Um, And we moved to Bombay for a few years and then to Bangalore, and Bangalore at the time was this relatively small, sleepy town, which is part of the reason my parents moved there. Mm. And while I was there, you know, it exploded into this huge metropolis. But I grew up the rest of my life from the age of about seven until I was 18 in Bangalore. Um, most of my schooling was in Frank Anthony, which is this, um, I guess, nominally sort of Christian school. Um, pretty big. You know, a little rough and tumble, like people from all walks of life. And so I really valued that kind of broad Mm -hmm. diversity. And then for my last two years, I went to an international school because I was, you know, I thought I would study abroad. My parents didn't send me to that at the beginning because they thought I'd become a brat if I went to a fancy school. Um, And that school was very good for me intellectually. I think it kind of helped sharpen some of my interests. I then took a year off after school Spent some time with my family. I was also recovering from some, um, you know, it was just, it had been a hard year for various reasons. I'd been pretty anxious. I think I needed some time to decompress before I made this big life change. And then I went to college in Western Massachusetts at a place called Amherst, Mm. which was this small liberal arts school. Tucked among really beautiful woods. Was it the University of Amherst? It was Amherst College, oh, okay, which is kind of smaller, but and only undergrads. Mm. But they have a lot of... and That was a great place, too. I went in wanting to study physics and philosophy, and I stuck with the physics. I ended up dropping the philosophy because it felt like I was using the same part of my brain a lot. And so I took lots of, you know, literature and Spanish and kind mm. of hippie dance classes instead. Um, and it was a really great place to study philosophy because, it, sorry, physics, because it was a very broad education, but had a very good physics department. And so even though I didn't, you don't take as many physics classes, maybe something like a third of my classes were in physics, but I still feel like I got a lot out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so you got an undergraduate degree in, in physics? In physics. So okay. it's technically a BA. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I moved back to India for about a year and a half, like thought I wanted to go to grad school, but I wasn't sure. I had all these sort of various interests. Um, I wanted to study more yoga. I'd been reading a lot of marks and wanted to, like, kind of do more social work. Um, And so the first thing I did was I moved back to Bangalore and I started living and working on this farm outside the city with this guy who ran a women's health nonprofit and also ran a silkworm farm and also was or claimed to be you know, a yogi who did a lot of various kinds of breath and body work and meditative practices and so i wanted to study under him um he was pretty radical i wanted to this know, was a... a guy from somewhere in europe no he was he was south indian okay. his name was kumar this yeah this was a farm just outside bangalore okay um and so he'd been involved in
0: i was just reading earlier uh, your blog well at least some blog posts on Three Quarks Daily and one of them was about life in the farm. And so you mentioned that there were some like ex-Europeans.
1: So the farm next to us was this very... Yeah, so the farm itself was kind of in the outskirts Mm -hmm. of Bangalore. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was mostly agricultural and small villages and some migrant labor. Um, And then there was this weird farm kind of in the middle of all of that. And we were all on the edge of a game sanctuary too, which was pretty cool. But there was this weird farm run by this guy called Guru Freddy, who yeah. was this strange Belgian guy, who had collected this group of, um, They're kind of like Germans and Belgians. This sort of back to the land. A lot of them were old communist radicals who had, I think, had fled. It was never quite clear to me what was happening on that farm, whether the guy, whether there was a cult, whether <laughs> there was just a bunch of friendly farmers. Um, there were all these weird. One of them got bitten by a cobra because he was trying to s- live in harmony with nature and he lay down on it. Um, <laughs> yeah. On the other hand, they had really beautiful vegetables. They did this biogas composting thing, um, which we learned a lot from. Yes, but it was kind of an interesting place. Guru Freddy also did a bunch of stuff training like commandos for the Indian government, I think. But like, there was an obstacle course. Mm-hmm. It was not, never quite clear what was happening, whether they were pacifists, whether they <laughs> were not. Um, but yeah, but the, I mean, the farm I was on... <clears throat> was mostly this guy Kumar who was you know this very striking guy big flowing curls big beard like very imposing physical presence um, kind of again you know a Marxist very involved in Dalit politics at the same time he was running this women's health group trying to train um, local women healers in, in using these various kind of herbal medicines working a lot with the local panchayats and then also into all these like weird and interesting yogi practices a lot of breath work, a lot of this deep tissue type of South, South Indian massage, which I studied under him. Um, and then they were also doing this sort of agricultural extension type work with silkworms. Um, so sericulture is a big employer, especially in South India. It's it's both labor intensive but relatively profitable. But a lot of the South Indians, at least this, a lot of the silk there, wasn't of high quality as as of high quality. And so they spent, they're trying to improve, they're trying to train farmers to produce better silk. Mm -hmm. And so I did some of that too. I spent a bunch of time feeding silkworms and they just eat and eat and grow and grow. And you can, I can still hear they're chomping in my mind sometimes. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. And it was, it was a very interesting experience. Um, I still don't know what to make of him. I feel like, you know, it, it sort of got to some of the problems I have with, I guess some non-profit organizations and some sort of spiritual work. I felt the organization was both pretty radical, but in many ways didn't really do enough to kind of challenge the hierarchies that it was in. Like, um, And so I felt like it ended up being a somewhat hierarchical place. Um, I still can't tell if a lot of his spiritual work and meditation, like what was real, what was not. I think there was a lot there. I think there was also a lot of like obfuscation. Um, mm-hmm. uh, And at the end of it, you know, I spent about six or eight months there and I wasn't sure what was going on. Um, I enjoyed my time, but at the same time, I was disappointed with a lot of stuff. So I ended up leaving. Um, I spent a few months after that. I did various things. I did a bunch of hiking. I went and worked as a journalist in Calcutta where my parents grew up and where I never lived. And that, as you know, is a fascinating city. And so it was a really good excuse to kind of wander around the city, do a bunch of writing um i've had this long-standing project to write some combination of a cookbook and a murder mystery which kind of started then um i did a lot of interviewing of you know local minor celebrities and struggling artists kind of a good complement of bengali is what you expect um and at that time i was applying to grad school and i was applying to a combination of physics programs and applied math programs i think i started off Especially when I, was, when I was younger, I was fascinated by the stars and relativity and cosmology and high energy physics. And I already thought, oh, physics is going to tell us the truths of the universe. These are the eternal laws that physicists like these new high priests get to yeah. unveil to us. Um, but already in at the end of high school, I was, I was interested in nonlinear dynamics and chaos and things that go under the name of complexity. Um which is both very interesting and not quite intellectually respectable. There's, again, there's a lot of... Yeah. You know, there's a lot of really... It's not, like, fundamental enough. It's not the... fundamental. Some, sometimes there's a lot of exaggerated claims, like, in a lot of fields that are hard to um, verify. But at the end of college, I started exploring computational neuroscience. And so when I was getting to grad school, I thought I wanted to do some kind of mathematical biology. Because hmm. it seemed like a lot of the problems, a lot of the really exciting problems, a lot of the frontiers are in biology and that i think is a feeling that's really deepened since then it seems to me that just like you know physics in some ways was the template science from um you know maybe post-renaissance like through the enlightenment and we built up a lot of our philosophy and math around that it seems biology and living systems i think can play a similar role today so they both it's a very exciting time to be a biologist but also Developing the math and the philosophy around biology, I think, is a very productive Mm -hmm. thing to do. And so I didn't realize that you could study, do some kind of mathematical biology as a physicist. So I applied to physics and applied math programs and chose the only applied math program I got into. I'd only taken two math classes in college at the time, actually, but because of physics. I knew a bunch of math. And so then I went to Yale for grad school and I spent six years there. I spent a bunch of grad school trying to wand- wandering around, trying to figure out what I was really interested in. I started out as a systems biologist or doing a systems biology rotation. I tried thinking about evolution um, and then I found my way back to the brain and it, it does seem like the brain is the most, you know, if you're gonna pick some, I don't know, a square meter or a square, a few <laughs> square feet, cubic feet of interesting matter the brain seems to be about as interesting as you can get. Um, so six years in New Haven, which was a small town but a very charming town, was one I really grew to like. Um, there was a lot of rich local culture, a lot of rich university culture. I felt like I had a great community there. I lived in a big six-person house with a bunch of grad students, large backyard where we grew lots of vegetables, lots of dinner parties. It felt like a pretty rich time in my life. Um, I then spent a year in New York with a brief stint in Shanghai because my grad school advisor was moving to NYU to help set up their campus in Shanghai. And he said, why don't you come along, you know, spend. Um, and so I spent this perhaps slightly in between year in New York as a postdoc finishing up my grad school stuff. Um, I had a lot of friends in New York. That was a lot of fun. It felt I had a subsidized apartment right in the middle of Manhattan um, through NYU. So it really felt, It was very social. I really felt like it was the center of everything. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I also felt like it was time to leave the Northeast. Um, I was starting to get a better sense of what I was interested in in terms of neuroscience and math. I think my interests in some ways took a longer time to explore, to mature. And I sort of had picked up on two things that I think are themes that still very much drive my work. Um, And so the first is, I mean, I think neuroscience is getting to the point where we can start to... Th- there's often been a bit of a gap between theories and data because things in neuroscience emerge from the activity of millions of neurons. Most In most data, we can only record a few. And we try and frame our theories at the level of these collectives. And so there's this big gap. How do you get from one to the other? And so in a lot of parts of neuroscience, you've either had theory or you've had data analysis. And they haven't really talk to each other as much as they could have. Um, and it feels like the field is getting to a point where we can start to frame and test theories that are informed by population-level data. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's this is sort of a growing part of neuroscience. I think it's a very rich intersection. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of interesting both methodological work to be done. Um, but I think it kind of, I think it's, it's sort of creative in a very interesting way because you're still working with data sets that are really a tiny sample of the space of possibilities. And so our theories are still pretty under constrained. Um, and there's probably a lot of noise. And so figuring out how to match these things together at that level, I think is very interesting. Mm -hmm. And so that's one piece. And then the second piece is thinking about collective computation, thinking about the brain through the lens of randomized distributed algorithms. Um, kind of driven by ideas in computer science and modern developments in math but again there's this idea that you have this huge collective of millions of neurons that are all getting, getting together to do something any individual neuron has access to only some small piece of this much bigger computation there's lots of noise in the system neurons can be unreliable most neurons don't even talk to each other and yet somehow this whole distributed network is able to do things and it's able to do everything that underlies all of our thoughts and feelings. And I think, you know, there's one of the theoretical barriers. One of the barriers I talked about earlier was we don't have enough data, but equally well, I don't think we have the ideas. Our intuition is very much set up to think about systems with a few small pieces that do a job reliably, Mm -hmm. you know, like in a small company or like even if you're thinking of what you have to do for your day, Mm -hmm. you know, you break it up into a few moving pieces Mm -hmm. And it feels like the principles for these distributed systems are going to be radically different and at the same time i think there's a lot of really interesting work coming out of computer science and math thinking about randomized algorithms thinking about distributed computation thinking about the possibilities of large networks um, and so there's this very fertile sort of ferment of ideas um, that i'd love to work in i think there are also interesting connections to you know bits of philosophy bits of Um, I guess we've talked about a little bit ideas from Buddhism. I think we sort of assume in these big collectives that there's some organizing center, there's some self that kind of keeps everything going. And we do this even in our language. We say, oh, the brain does X, the brain Mm. does Y. But there really is no brain. There's a bunch of neurons doing something. Mm. Um, And so I'm very interested in the conceptual categories that allow us to think about these collectives without either fixing them into a single entity or without letting everything else dissolve. Mm. Um, identifying the right
0: level of abstraction
1: or moving between them or Mm -hmm. kind of holding the abstractions lightly so I guess I went off on a tangent but that's Mm -hmm. kind of how I came so I was looking around for groups that worked on both the kind of narrow the slightly narrower objectives I wanted to learn how to do population data analysis in neural data sets because I hadn't done that and I wanted to think about neuroscience through the lens of algorithms, um, and so that's when I came to Austin work with Ela Feet, who is one of the I think one of the few groups doing both. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've been in Austin for about four years. I spent six months earlier this year in Berkeley on a Simons program, thinking about brains and computers, um, and I'm going to be starting at UC Davis in March as an assistant professor in, in neuroscience and in math.
0: Mm-hmm. Thank you for visiting the Room of Lives. In the next episode, we talk about Rishi's life experience of being suspended between cultures.